So what I'm going to do today is I'm coming to in the Gospel of John, because in the Gospel of John, it's what we have, what we call the seven I am statements of Jesus. You ever heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay, seven. You always wonder, what are those? Well, it's seven places that Jesus says, I am something. Now, he actually says it quite a few times in the Gospels, probably over 40. But there's something about in these seven, when he says it, the context, and then whether Jesus spoke it in Greek or spoke it in Aramaic, and when John wrote it in Greek, he understood what Jesus was saying in Aramaic, wrote it this way. There, there's a certain way in the Greek that you write it that emphasizes a particular point. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 3, when God reveals himself to Moses, and Moses asks, who is it? You know, they, need the, they need a name. God says, I am who I am. Yahweh is Yahweh. I am, which is what the name Yahweh means. It, it, by the way, it's not Jehovah. That's German. It's Hebrew is Yahweh. English is Lord. So he says, I am who I am. And I am is basically God revealing his personal name to Moses. And we would understand that it's the Lord, the Lord, God Almighty. So these seven I am statements of Jesus are in some way connecting him to the revelation of God. God is revealing himself to Moses as the Lord, their personal covenant God. So these seven I am statements of Jesus, he is revealing something about himself as the Lord, as God. And so we're going to go through these seven really quick because we, know, we, know, we don't have time to, you know, to do all of it. But I mean, into detail, but we're going to go through them. Now, let me just say this. In the Greek language, and I know you don't care about Greek. I get that. But sometimes Greek matters, right? Just like sometimes English matters, Teaching that to Barry. Uh, okay, I'm just kidding. I shouldn't have said that. Don't, don't say that I told him that because then he, you know, I don't have to explain to you. I was just kidding. But, uh, you know, I, the language matters. Language is a way of representing things. In the Greek, it is the phrase, ego, I mean, which means I, I am. And, and when you say I, nobody in English says, well, I, I am here. I, I am here. But in that language, it is an emphatic way of saying something. So the ego I mean is, is emphatic. It, in other words, it, it matters. It'd be like saying, here, look at me. I'm telling you something that matters. So the first of the I am statements of Jesus come in John chapter 6. So you, if you want to follow along, turn that way. There ain't nothing coupling up there. Um, now in John chapter 6, this, this is actually the pivotal chapter really in the book of John, because by the time John chapter 6 ends, many of the people who were following Jesus have deserted him. John 6 begins with Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Now remember a few weeks back when we started this, we talked about the temptation experience of Jesus. And in the temptation experience of Jesus, one of the things that Satan tempted him to do was to turn rock into bread. Now the reason, in the whole temptation thing of Jesus, if you remember, was to try to get Jesus to short-circuit the type of Messiah he was supposed to be, to take a shortcut to get the people to follow him. If he turned stones into bread and fed himself, but if he would go down that road, people if he fed the people, the people would follow him in mass. All four of the Gospels record him feeding the 5,000. And they followed him in mass. They, it was 5,000 men. It's not counting women and children. 
And then once word got out that he was doing it, they were everywhere. He had to leave. He got in a boat and crossed over to the other side of the lake. And they kept following him. So in John chapter 6, Jesus begins to speak to the people. And in verse 26, he says, I say to you, truly, truly, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. You are following me because I fed you. That's what he's saying. And so he says, don't work for food that perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life. And they said in verse 28, where shall we do? You know, we may work the works of God. And he talks in verse 29 about the work of God that you believe in him who is sent. I mean, you believe in him who is sent. That's me. So in verse 30, they said, look, what then will you do for a sign? We need a sign. He just fed 5,000 people with two fishes and a handful of bread biscuits. You know, I had lunch at Cracker Barrel today. Two biscuits don't go very far. There were four. I had to take some of my wife's biscuits to make it work. And I guarantee you the fish at Cracker Barrel, unless you get a double order, ain't feeling you up. I love Cracker Barrel. But you got to get a double So the little fish and the little bread ain't going nowhere. So they said, you know, we need to see this miracle. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They're going back to the time of Moses. And that was a miracle. Jesus said, verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, isn't Moses who gave them bread out of heaven? But my father. Verse 35 says, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. They say, Lord, give us this bread. Now, they're talking physical bread. Then in verse 35, it's just what Jesus says. I, and I alone, am the bread of life. He is the bread which contains life. Zoe, when, you know, in several of these I am statements, he talks about life. And the word for life is not bios, it's not biology, it's not the flesh and the skin and all that. It's zoe. It means life as it should be. It is the word used in the term eternal life. He said, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me will not hunger, and who believes me will never thirst. The most important things in life, basic needs, are, are food and water. And we would add clothing, obviously, but food and water. Now, here's the thing. He's saying, what you want physically is not what I'm providing. It's spiritual. Now, here's the cool thing. When he says to me, you will not hunger and you will never thirst, in the Greek, that's a double negative. You will not, you by no means hunger. You will not never hunger and not never thirst. Whenever you have a double negative in English, and I've told you this before, in English, that's bad. I know that because my English grades, I'd use double negatives, and I'd get marked off. In Greek, it is important. It's emphatic. And so here's what he's saying. Emphatically, I am the bread that gives life. And emphatically, if you partake of that, you will never spiritually hunger or thirst again. So, you know, they want manna, and he's talking about the spiritual manna that will forever change their life. So the first thing you see from Jesus, and in verse 36, he said, I said to you that if you see me, you do not believe. He's saying, you don't believe these things. He did for them a physical miracle that should have indicated to them who he is. And so for the, for the first of these seven statements, he is telling them to partake of me is to have the spiritual fulfillment of hunger and thirst. Now, I... I want to go on and on. I don't have time to keep for all these. I've got to cut all these short. I'm just giving you a quick overview. And I'll tie them together. So here's what he said. By the end of chapter 6, they're abandoning Jesus. 
In fact, in the chapter 6, he ends up looking at the disciples and says, you're going to leave too? And Peter makes one of the fantastic statements of all time, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So, from there you go to chapter 8. Now, the first part of chapter 8 is the part where, you know, the woman caught in adultery and all your versions will say, the oldest manuscripts don't have that. So don't worry about that. So the first verse we'll look at really is verse 12. He is dealing in the temple. Now, in the temple, there, there are a lot of things there. There's you know, the light, certain candles and lights and all that. So they have light illuminating. Now, in that day and age, darkness represented two things. Most often, it represented ignorance. It could also represent evil. You know, you know, I was watching some Star Wars movies the other day. Come to the dark side. You know, there's that the idea of darkness representing evil. But usually, most of the time, it really kind of represents just ignorance. And we know from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about you know being light. We should let our light shine. Just be light. So here's what he says. Very easy. John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. He who follows me, notice what we talked about in September, follows me in, in our sermons, will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of, what's the word again? Life. Life. So here's the thing. He is, he is the understanding. He is the wisdom. He is the illumination into the eye. He is the revealing one. Now, we talk oftentimes about God reveals himself to us. And, you know, Scripture is God's revelation of himself to us. It is the light in the darkness. And people, people, we oftentimes describe them without Christ are living in spiritual darkness. They're, they're ignorant. They don't know. They don't grasp. They don't understand. So the one that helps them understand is the light of the world. So when Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world, he, he, the word world is interesting. The word world, I usually share this, means one of three things. It means the earth, uh, it means the people, or the people living in evil. Here it most likely just means people. I am the light of people. So that anyone can see me and know that they don't have to live. Walking is to live. It's the idea of following a path. They don't have to live in darkness, but will have the light which, come, which provides life. So we have the bread, which provides life. We have the light, which provides life. Life the way it's meant to be. So whatever life is supposed to be, from the standpoint of how God intends, is found in the great I am. I am Emphatically, light and light. So with that, we go to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is, is one of these, I mean, I keep saying these chapters are fascinating. They are. Chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who's blind. I, I'm sorry, he heals, yeah, a man born blind. And if you remember a, a few weeks ago, I think, I don't know if it was Sunday morning or Wednesday at night. I got, uh, things run together. Y'all ever had that problem that everything kind of runs together? So when I'm teaching and preaching, things just, especially when it's the same general subject, I, I can't remember things well. Um, and so, but he healed this man born blind on the Sabbath. So Sunday morning, I've mentioned this. He healed this man born blind on the Sabbath. 
Now, because he healed on the Sabbath, and I talked about the Sabbath last week, this had a huge conflict with the religious leaders. And the religious leaders cared more about keeping their silly laws and rules than in helping people. And they cast the blind man out of the synagogues. I mean, he wasn't blind anymore. He could see, but they cast him out because of what Jesus did. So, you know, they had this unbelievable confrontation with Jesus. Back in chapter 8, even, if you go back that far, they wanted, they wanted to kill Jesus. And one of the things I didn't talk about is later on in chapter 8, after he's alive of the world, he starts to reveal himself as being God. These things all connect. So, in chapter 10, after all of this stuff, keeping in mind the healing they did on the Sabbath, where the religious leaders are in opposition, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs some other way, he is a thief and a robber. So here's what he's going to do. By the way, two of the I am in statements are found in chapter 10, verse 9 and verse 11. He is going to talk about the religious leaders as being the thieves and the robbers throughout chapter 10. And there's a couple of separate incidents. Here's this ongoing motif of the shepherd and the sheep. We're the sheep. People are the sheep. Sheep need two things. They need protection. They need three things. They need protection from predators. They need sustenance. And they need leadership to guide them. And, and shepherds do that. They protect the sheep and they guide them to pasture and water. But sometimes what would happen is the shepherd, if they were out in the fields and they were close enough, when evening comes, he would call the sheep. And there might be several, they would put their flocks together. But every, all the sheep would know the voice of their master. Just like, my, my, you have, I have dogs besides me, pets? I don't know about cats. I don't know what cats know. Cats are a little difficult. But we have puppies, dogs, little dogs. And our two dogs know our voice. They know our voice. They know the sound of the garage door opener opening. They know the sound of the refrigerator opening. I guarantee you that. Hey! The old man's opening the fridge. Let's go. So sheep would know the voice, and so the shepherd might take the sheep back to the fold, and to get into the, to the, the pen where they were, there'd be a door. He says, he who does not enter by the door, thieves enter some other way. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd. And then he talks about that, and then in verse 9 he says this. Well, verse 7 he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Okay, that's not actually an I am statement yet. It just says I am. It's not written the same way. All who came before me, the religious leaders, are thieves and robbers. He says, I am the door. In verse 9, if anyone enters through me, what does he say? He will be saved. The sheep go to the pen, they're saved, they're safe. He's talking here about eternal salvation. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. So the safety of the sheep is in that door where the thief doesn't enter, but the shepherd does. He is saying, I am the door. I am the one through whom the sheep enter for safety. Now he's going to go on. And he's going to expand the metaphor, the illustration. Verse 10, very famous, very famous verse. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. I came that you may have what again? Life. Life. To the fullest. Abundant means overflowing. Then in verse 11, I am also, he says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So not only is he the door for the sheep, he is the good shepherd for the sheep. He is the, what do shepherds do? Protect the sheep. Leads the sheep. What does Psalm 23 says? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me. 
There he goes. What do shepherds do? They lead the sheep. And the good shepherd lays down his life. He protects the sheep. And he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. Now, a little bit later in chapter 10, there's two separate stories that happen. Time to go into all that. The, 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 the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. They, they know he's talking about them. All right? Look at, read the gospel. I'm, I'm reading through the gospel of Mark. In fact, I finished it today. It's amazing how many times when you just sit and read through Mark's gospel, it says that the religious leaders, some shape, form, or fashion, wanted to destroy him, kill him, stone him, whatever. I mean, it's constant. They're always out to get him. So in chapter 10, towards the end, in verse 27, he says, this is, you know, if you don't, if you struggle with the idea of once saved, always saved, or that you can't lose your salvation. John 10, 27 and following, Jesus says this. My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they, what, follow me. And I give to them eternal Life. You know what eternal life means? You're never going to hell. Eternal. 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 Forever. Life. And he says, they by shall no means, another double negative, emphatic, perish. Perish means to be destroyed. And no one, he says, can snatch them. The word snatch is the word rapture. Pull away from my hand. It's a violent term. They're not going to be destroyed in hell, nor can anyone, Satan, pull them away. My Father, who is greater than all, has given them to me. No one can snatch them from my Father's hand. And then he says this, I and the Father are one. Do you see how these I am statements point to him as God? So when people say, you know, nowhere in the New Testament Gospels does Jesus ever claim to be God. Bull! Read it. It's exactly what he's saying. So from there, we got to go, we got to go. We go to chapter 11. And after, after all the stuff in chapter 10, we're getting close to the cross. And Lazarus, his good friend, is sick. They call for him. He don't go. He waits and lets Lazarus die. And then he's been dead about three days, four days. He takes off. And so I, a lot of the funerals I do, these next two I am statements, I do a lot of funerals. Probably 80% of the funerals I do have uh, either from John 11 or John 14. You know, if, if you, you know, plan on dying sometime, when we do the funeral, have a request, just put it in. I'll do whatever. Here's the thing. So he's coming back to Mary and Martha. Over in, in about verse 22. Ah, let's go to verse 21. Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is fourth day. That's a tremendous statement. She realizes. But he, but he says, she says this, what a great statement. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. She's not, she's not saying, I know you'll raise me back to life. She's just saying, I still trust you. And he says, your brother will rise again. Talking about the resurrection. They all believe in the resurrection. Martha says, I know he will rise again on the resurrection the last day. So she, I, I know. I, I know one day I'll see him again. He says, no, no, listen to this. I and I alone am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection of life. The resurrection surveys back. I don't have time to go into detail. Life, Zoe, once again. Whatever resurrection is, whatever life is, is Jesus. So if you believe in me, in this life, he says, if you believe in me, you will never die. He who, I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Lazarus has died, but he will live because he believed in Jesus. But then he says this. But he who lives, he who is living now and believes will never die. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's talking about two types of living and two types of dying. There's earthly living and there's forever living. And there's earthly dying and there is spiritual forever dying in hell. If you die physically but believe, you will live eternally. And if you live Physically and believe. I mean, if you and if you when you live physically, if you don't believe, when you die physically, then you will die for all eternity. On the resurrection life, he who believes in me will live forever, even though he dies. And he who lives and believes will never die. He says, "You believe this? You have faith in this?" And she says, "It's a second great statement." Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. Even he who has come into the world. You are, she says, the son of God, Christ, who has come into the world. So she buys into what he says. So whatever resurrection is, whatever life is, it's in Jesus. Which brings us in to John 14 and 15. Now, John 13 through 17 is a unit. In John 13... Jesus and the apostles, his disciples, but the, but the 12, go into the upper room. He washes their feet. Do the, do the Passover, Lord's Supper, Judas leaves. In John 13, leave 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new command that I give to you, that you love one another. I heard it put this way the other day, which I found interesting. I hadn't really thought of it. We know that Jesus gives two commands, love God, love others. And then right before his death, he boils it down to one. You just love each other. That's my command. And if you love each other, he's talking to the apostles, the 12. Everything else can take care of itself. Now, Judas goes to betray him. You have, verse, you have chapter 14, 15, and 16, which is the upper room discord. Next July, the last Friday in July, we're going to do our next deep fry. I'm putting in a plug nine months out. It'll be on John 14, 15, and 16. So just write that down. Begin reading it, learning it, and all that stuff. Chapter 17 is the high priestly prayer of Christ as he walks out towards Golgotha. And in John 14, it begins, and I do this at funerals a lot, you know, that not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, I go away, all that stuff. And so then he says, you know where I'm going, you know the way. And, and so as, you know, so often with the apostles and the things that they do, they just don't get it. So Thomas says to him, Lord, Verse 5 of chapter 14. We do not know where you are going, so how in the world do we know the way? That's what it means. We have no idea where you're going. What are you talking about? How do we know the way? So then Jesus says, and I've said this before, and I think, I think I'm preaching from it. I think I'm preaching from it next spring. What I think in today's culture, 
in a world where there's so much relativity, where people are saying all religions are the same, let's coexist, that we're all, everybody's on the same path. I think this is the defining verse for the culture in which we live today. And John 3.16 is still the great, most popular, I'm not taking away from that. This is the defining verse. Here's what Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father but through me. Now, this is what it literally says in the Greek. When I translate it out literally, I have a sermon somewhere I do it. He says, I and I alone am the way, I and I alone am the truth, and I and I alone am the life. And no man can by any other means come to the Father but through me. It's another double and negative. Ain't no way you ever come to the Father but through me. That is the single most definitive verse I know to exclude every other way to God but Jesus. He can't be any more emphatic. He says, I'm the only way, I'm the only truth, and I'm the only life. Now, in Jewish culture, and if you go into the Old Testament, you see this more. The concept of way, truth, and life are very important because they're all connected to things about God. So in the Old Testament, they talk about way as a journey, a way to God. What is the way to God? They talk about truth. Truth comes from God. God is truth. Whatever is true comes from God. And they talk about life, life in the Old Testament to the Jewish way of thinking. Life is only found in the covenant of God, keeping God. So, you know, and, and so these are very Jewish thoughts. And so in his last hours with these guys, he, he's reaching into the baggage of their life reference to their religious understanding. And he's saying to them, whatever you understand the way to be, and whatever you may understand truth to be, and whatever you understand life to be, that's me. And because of that, there simply is no other way to get to the Father. Now, I don't know how we make that message any clearer. When everybody says, ah, oh, there's a lot of roads that lead to God. No, there's not. There's a lot of truth. No, there's not. There's a lot of different types of life that God accepts. No, there's not. Just one. Only one. And that's through Jesus. So the only way he can make that claim is if he's God. So I am, Jesus says, I am that. So brings him, he continues talking, then he comes to chapter 15. And this is probably the least, the last of the I am's is probably the least dramatic. It, it may be kind of the most hard to understand, kind of muddled. You know, it's, and I look at him, I'm like, yeah, I don't ever preach from this one. It just doesn't, you know, eh, okay. But this is what he says in chapter 15. He says, and this is, and verse 15 is not the I am statement. It doesn't, um, uh, cha- verse 1 is not, it's not until verse 5. He says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So he's, he's talking about grapes. And we, we Baptists don't mind grapes. When he starts talking about wine, we don't like that. Right, Brian? He's giving hard times inside thing there. Not that he drinks wine. I don't want you to think that. He, he doesn't. He quit. He doesn't do that anymore. He's fine. <laughs> Just kidding. Again, he doesn't do any of that. I had him investigated by a PI, so he's good. 
Every branch, now he's the vine, off the vine come the branches, and the branches bear the fruit. Vine doesn't bear the fruit, the branches bear the fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, prunes it out. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, I mean, he, he cuts it out. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, might bear more fruit. So that pruning can be a little suffering, but I'm not going to go into depth. So if the branch bears fruit, he keeps it, may prune it some, more fruit, no fruit, it's done. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, remain in me, he says, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, as the branch has to be in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. For, for I just added, I and I alone in the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For... Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the basis of what we call discipleship. When we realize that we are connected to Christ, and only by our connection to Christ, which may involve pruning from time to time, only through our connection to Christ can we produce fruit. And if we don't produce fruit, he chunks us away. There's no such thing as a non-fruit-producing Christian. They're just called not Christians. People get upset by that, don't know what to tell you. It's biblical. Don't blame me. Now, you may not produce a lot of fruit. Your grapes may be weak. You may produce so much fruit that you have the finest wine in all of Las Cruces. But you produce fruit. And the only way to produce fruit is to be intimately connected to the vine. Because once the branch is severed from the vine, it's useless. And what he's saying to us is I'm the only way you guys, he's talking about these apostles, you're going to go out into the world. They don't understand all this yet because Jesus hasn't died yet. They will one day. I'm the only way you're going to be able to make this thing work. The only way, when you get to the book of Acts, <laughs> the only way all that's going to work, now the Holy Spirit's coming, I got that, I understand that, but the only way this is going to work is if you're connected to me. Which is why we have Grow, and we have Awana, and we have Sunday School, and Bible study, and connect groups, and worship, and why we don't live our Christian faith alone, because we need one another to do what? To biding the vine, to grow and to grow, to produce fruit. Churches need to be fruit-bearing churches. Now here you got seven I am statements, and I got to cut all off. Give you time to ask questions. So Jesus says, whatever life is, it's in me. There's the bread, there's the light. There is, as the shepherd, the door, and I am the good shepherd that gives the life. Because we, I am the resurrection, I am the way, truth, life. Ultimately, I am the vine, which all life is connected. I'm God in the flesh, and only I am that. And all these other groups, philosophies, religions, are all false because they are not the great I am. It's just Jesus. And only Jesus. And that's all there is. 
What we've got to understand about the beginning of the movement is when these guys took this to heart, they changed the world in their ministry. When you come to the book of Acts, you hear that first sermon by Peter. It's an amazing sermon. You see these guys laying down their life. You see these guys opposing the very religious leaders that a few weeks earlier they were running from, but looking them in the face in defiant of God. And you see them take on the Roman government and preach the gospel. You understand it's because they understood what life really was. It was connected to the Lord who revealed himself to us in all these things. All right. You have questions. I'll do my best to answer them. Yes, sir. Yes. And we assume then that it's, that branch has life in the in the Lord Jesus. Yes. However, if that uh, particular branch does not uh, produce fruit, yes, it's cut off. It, it exists no more in that vine. Yes. Eternal damnation. Well, I mean, if you, I mean, you know, you're, you're putting it probably not in the way that the illustration was originally intended, but I get you. Yes, put it this way. Uh, I, have, I have some trees, and I noticed that some of the branches producing leaves and all that, and some of them aren't. They're dead. They're cut off. So I tear them off and cut them back. It's, it, the purpose of the illustration is to remind these guys that they're going to produce fruit because they are in the branch. If they don't produce fruit, Judas, for instance, would be an example, cut off. So the emphasis is not so much on cutting out the dead branches, though it's there as illustration, and those are the people who do not have life in Christ. If they don't produce fruit, they don't have the life. You know, they don't have the sap. They don't have the juice. The, so that part's true. You're true. The focus is on the producing of the, the fruit, but it is true that the branch is cut off because it has no fruit, it has no life in the vine. Well, actually, I think it would be more like a person who claims to be a follower of Christ but isn't. be like what you find in the end of the Sermon on the Mount when not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Or you find the person that built his house on the sand. You know, they, were con- they, they, they listened to Jesus. You know, they believe in Jesus and God. They never gave their life to Jesus. They never became a disciple, a follower. be like that. Yes? Yes. 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 They shoot it. Now it could be that you scare them uh, on the face of it. It just could be other factors involved, like you're frightening them. But yes. Huh? I'm not a sheep. I'm more, according to my wife, I'm more of a goat, I think. <laughs> Greatest of all time. <laughs> so. Old goats. <laughs> you ever see the Muppets? You're like the two old guys in the Muppets at the theater over there. 
What do you think he said? I don't know what he said. He didn't know what he's talking about. I don't know. We'll come back next week and see what it is. Other questions? Oh, man, no, you take on the guy with the mic. I have all the advantages. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. In John 4, which verse again? 426. She said, I know that the Messiah is coming. Yeah, okay. So she's talking, this is with the Samaritan woman. It's, not, it's, I, I, it's probably not the same Greek. I don't have that in front of me. But it does not, it's not the same context. It's, it's normally not. Jesus said to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. There they're talking about the Messiah. Not actually talking about God per se. You're, but what you're saying is tracking in the right way. He is revealing something about himself, but it's, he doesn't say, I am. He just it says, I who. So most likely, uh, it's, it's going to be the I me part. I don't know. I have to go back and look it up. But it's probably, I don't have my phone. I can look at my phone. I don't have it. But I, you, there are plenty of other places where it says, ego, I me. But it's not. In, it's the context of those seven stories. Are those seven examples that matter? You'll find other places in the Greek. They're all over the place. I come across them all the time. It's not always emphatic in the sense that the context determines that. So what would determine it? Those, remember, he's in those cases. He's with his disciples in part, and other people too sometimes. But he's revealing things to them. So uh, in, in in this instance, he's dealing with this woman, and and I think I went through this a couple of weeks ago. I think. And he's talking to her and revealing himself to her as Messiah. So it would be a different type of revelation. He's revealing himself to her. It's a different type of revelation that deals with a specific purpose. He's dealing with a Samaritan, a foreigner. And he's connecting with her on an evangelistic. He's connecting with her with the purpose of leading her to a place of salvation. So he's revealing himself as the Messiah. In these others, he's revealing himself from a doctrinal or teaching him standpoint to show that he is God, or he's the Lord. So there's there's a little contextual, but but you're you know you're, basically he's revealing himself on that point. You're right about that. So what else? All right, y'all can go. <laughs>